lives at Maple Hill Farm? People live here. Two dogs and five horses live here. A pig lives here. Then there are some geese, lots of chickens, a few cows, a few goats, several sheep, and four special cats. Welcome to 1001 Good Nights, a new podcast about the stories behind bedtime stories. Turn the pages with two new dads, one a psychologist and one a book editor, as they try to understand the nighttime ritual of their foreseeable future. talk today about our animal friends at Maple Hill Farm, which I'm I'm really excited about because of all the books uh, in this season, I think I'm most intrigued by this one because I it's the only one I had never heard of at all um, until you very kindly sent me a copy of it. So uh, dive in. Tell me about our animal friends and why you chose it. Yeah, this one came out of nowhere for me too. I will say that Parenthood has enriched my life in a myriad of ways, but the biggest literary discovery by far was this book. It, it uh, I mean, it's it's one of the most enjoyable books uh, that I've encountered in the last ten years, full stop. And it was not remotely on my radar as a child or uh, as a parent to be. Um, I married in to a Maple Hill farm family. <laughs> so um, Chelsea uh, had grown up with this, and so she insisted on it as a foundational piece of the library that, that we were acquiring of bedtime stories and you know things that had been important to both of us. And I was just staggered by it. I probably hadn't gotten three or four pages in before I was lighting Amazon up, ordering <laughs> copies for friends and family and proselytizing for it. Um, it's, it's just incredible. I, I will say that I am maybe uh, particularly sensitive to it because uh, I think the, the strengths of Maple Hill Farm are similar to uh, the joys that of of being a a new parent. So how I would explain that would be one of the most wonderful things about the book is just the variety of names and when uh, and the joy that the authors seem to take in naming all the various animal friends <laughs> on Maple Hill Farm. And as a new parent, I feel like your world shrinks to a certain extent. You're kind of trapped in close quarters and you're up late a lot and delirious, but that doesn't mean that you're, <laughs> that there's any less joy or creative energy. So in, in, in our household in the early days, I feel like we, we, uh, channeled that by just naming everything in sight, anthropomorphizing everything. So <laughs> there was uh, a, a touch light by the changing table 
that we named Finneman, just to give you an idea where we were. I, I won't rattle off all the names of uh, butterfly mobiles or inflatable bath ducks. Or <laughs> Is Finneman with an F or a PH? Finneman's uh, with an F, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, or to, to, and keep it, we, we had a, a thing where we just put F in front of a lot of spices. So we had Finneman, the, the touchlight and Futmeg, the, the lip balm <laughs> container. So that's a narrow and, but perhaps horrifying <laughs> glimpse into to where we were in terms of naming, but, but it was a really joyous thing. And I, there was just so much cherishing going on early, you know, in, in the first few days of Jack's life. And I feel like that spilled over into naming things. And I, I sense that same thread through our animal friends of Maple Hill Farm. So just the, the abandon with which they name things. And it doesn't seem like there's a rhyme or reason, but you almost trust that there is just because the, the, the care that they take in, in tossing out some of these names. So just a, a quick sampling. You've got Potato, who disappeared, Polonegri, Lovelace, Argos, Ma'a'a the goat, Old Eleven, Evil Murdoch, Good Old Little Red Hen. There's also Other Hen. <laughs> There's Ichabod, Ibn Rafferty, Comanche, Max, Eggnog, Chaos. Um, two of the dogs. So even the, the nicknames, one of the dogs is named Muffin, but Muffin's nicknames include Ragamuffin, Mafia, Beastie, Gorilla, Fiend. <laughs> Muffin's companion dog is Dinah, who's also known as Dine, Nosy Parker, Little Sister. So not only are they excited to name these creatures, they're nicknaming and double naming and triple naming. And as a as a as a new parent, I definitely that really resonated with me from the get go. It's I mean, it's hilarious just listening to you <laughs> recite all those, just hearing the names. And I think that's part of what you're getting at, right? It's like there, there's something strangely like powerful and entertaining in the very simple act of, of naming things. That's um, right, yeah. Which, which kind of took me off guard with this book. Like that surprised me how powerful that was um, and how much, even, even my daughters, Elena especially, um, she kind of lights up when you say, you know, when you go through these, these different names, especially those ones where there's, there's the name Dinah and then there's the, you know, three or four different nicknames. And right. It, yeah. It's, I think it's just, uh, it's kind of magical how that, that, the power of naming. Yeah. And as a parent, you're keenly sensitive to that because you're aware that you're introducing language to your child and, and how much of language we take for granted, you see in a new light as a parent. So even the fact that, something can have then can go by more than one name that's uh it's complicated and, and confusing but it's also an, an act of it's something of a miracle an act of love that <laughs> that, it, that, it, that one thing can wear many different names but so what makes this book great though is that there's a flip side is that there's this joyous abandon in uh naming all these creatures and it's obvious not just from the names, but the the details that the authors go in to that they they really love this world and its inhabitants. But there's also an edge to it. It's there's a lot of uh, sarcastic throwaway lines. There's this there's all these devastating little descriptive epigrams. I, I I often say that this book is kind of 
like Oscar Wilde dressed up in sheep's clothing. <laughs> so where there's that kind of savage uh, or, or polite savagery rather mm-hmm. <laughs> this, uh, genteel. Like, it, it's cutting, but, but somehow gentle at the same time. So uh, a lot of the, the panels that describe the animals, they'll, they'll be just these short little sentences. So it'll say something like willow is very beautiful but she is not very interesting (laughs) or eggnog has a sweet nature though. She throws up a lot and hates to go out of doors. Um, Ibn is sly. Chaos is grumpy. Lucky eats too much and Ichabod chews up fences. Oh, well no horse is perfect, but they are fun to know. (laughs) So, Max. Max is Gooseberry's son. Max is big. He is still very young. He has a tiny high voice and he likes cottage cheese. Max and Gooseberry are always spitting at each other, as you will see. But Max likes children and he likes to play. Max can be scratchy. You have to be careful when you play with him. He is not very clever with his claws. Max is clever enough to catch mice and rabbits and squirrels. It is not a pretty sight. He leaves gifts of guts and tails and chipmunk heads on the doorstep. Not a pretty sight either. But then, no cats are vegetarians. It's not in their nature. It strikes me that the the book is um, surprisingly, and maybe this it, it kind of shows its age, that it's from a different generation. I mean, I think it's from the mid-70s um, when it was written. But it's it's pretty judgmental <laughs> compared right. to a lot of the children's books that we're used to reading. The, I, I think of the she, the sheep uh, section in particular, like it just starts off with the sheep are silly. Like they're kind of right. dumb. They just like, and they, they just like, you know, they eat together, they sleep together, they get lost all the time. And, but then there's one who's smart, who's really clever. Old 11 old, is clever. Old 11, and yeah. Um, and so it's very, there's a lot of like, comparison and judgment and just sort of finality to you know well these ones are kind of dumb maybe they're kind of cute but they're sort of dumb and this one's really smart and you know will is beautiful but she's not very interesting like she's kind of a bimbo really yeah there yeah there's all kind that's that kind of contrast is throughout the book so uh another great example of that is the section on the dogs so the section starts off by saying other dogs are foolish dogs who do useless foolish things, which that's kind of <laughs> kind of writing these dogs off right. um, in, a, in, in a pretty judgy way, as, as you say. Um, and then when it runs, runs through the dogs, it'll say, this dog chased cars and was run over. His name was Canny. This dog snapped at children and wet on beds. He is not around <laughs> anymore either. His name was Sweeney. <laughs> This dog killed sheep and had to be put away, as the saying goes. <laughs> Which his name was Argos. This dog ran away from home and went to live with someone else. No one can remember his name. So, a lot of things to unpack there. One, the fact that they're just casually talking about dogs getting run over, which is a, a very traumatic thing to talk about. Um, but they're doing it in this offhand manner. And even in spite of the fact that these are the useless, foolish dogs, 
there's still that same range of names, Canny, Argos, Sweeney. There's still, so obviously these dogs did matter to, to, to yeah. the extent that they were named. And even the, the, the I'm, I'm really intrigued by the fact that no one can remember uh, the name of the dog who ran away from home and went to live with someone else. Because at that point, I mean, this is a made up story. Maybe unless maybe by the end of it, I, I feel like I thoroughly believed in Maple Hill Farm. But you know that the authors didn't say no one can remember his name just because they couldn't think up of another name. Like right, if they're throwing, right. uh, I mean, they're, they're not above saying other hen <laughs> and they're not above canny or Sweeney. So they can, they can come up with names. There's no, about, no doubt about that. But there's a lot of, this is just the way it is, um, attitude like, oh, well, we just sort of stumbled upon this farm and described it. And I, I, I feel like they really pull that off. And so the other really interesting thing about the dogs is that fairly, you know, towards the end of the book, they they deal with death in uh, a really solemn fashion. So as even though there's some throwaway lines about the dog getting run over by the car at the end, you learn about another cherished dog. So they'll say in a quiet corner of an overgrown field where the snow lies deepest. And the oak trees hold their leaves all winter. A beloved hound named John lies buried. Three cats are buried here. Webster, the first Siamese, a dear dirty white cat named Crook who stole from the table, and Fat Boy who looked like Max. In this quiet corner, the best wildflowers grow, and the first peepers are heard in the spring, even before the snow melts. Here, owls call from the treetops in the early morning, and the irreverent crows hold their noisy conventions. Here the mother deer has her fawn, and the migrating geese come to, net, to, to rest. It is here that the fox is safe from the hunters. So that's really solemn yeah. and reverential and entirely different in tone from, oh, well, this dog got run over by a car, or... Or even even the, the the way they talk about a skunk, where they say a mother skunk is walking by with her babies. Please do not notice her. You know? so, <laughs> do, do your do your kids? I I feel like you've been in deep with our animal friends of Maple Hill Farm recently. Do your children ask questions about? The... Yeah, so I was I was gonna mention that because we well first of all, Elena was basically uninterested in this book for the I, I tried to kind of introduce it a couple times and got nothing like just no no interest at all and then um about a week ago i i reintroduced it and we we have been reading nothing but uh, our animal friends over the last few days like just in deep heavy um and w one of the things that that is kind of one one of her reactions this that's interesting is she is very attuned to the idea that, especially when um, animals interact in a negative way with with children, like this dog snapped at children, she instantly right. will ask, like, "Well, why why did he snap at children?" Or the, um, I think with the uh, with the roosters, B Big Shot the rooster doesn't right. like children, and she, well, why doesn't he like children? Um, and so that is, she's clearly very um, attuned to that, like the relationship between. Uh, um, not so nice animals and children, uh, which, which is interesting because it, it, it makes me in those more, 
intense judgy descriptions it actually makes me a little bit nervous like should i be reading about you know like dogs getting killed or sent away or like what how is she reacting to that like the the, the dog killed the sheep like the dog murders the the sheep and had to be put away Um, right so some pretty heavy uh ideas for a three-year-old yeah and i i feel like one day she's she's gonna she's gonna get in trouble at school or something and and they're going to say, well, where did you learn that? And she, she'll say, I learned that from a, a goose <laughs> in our animal friends at Herbal Farm. Well, Evil Murdoch did it. <laughs> evil, evil Murdoch did it, exactly. Um, well, l- luckily for her, uh, Big Shot gets carried away uh, by a fox. Right. And one assumes that he is eaten or died. You don't know. It, it happens off screen. But that's another example of just casual death. Um, right. And And I feel like you and I have talked about this before. Some of that attitude maybe has to do with this being set on a farm so the 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 fact that with a farm you you have a pretty complicated relationship to the to the animals so you you're with them all the time and you get up in the in some ways it's it's like having a child that you're with them all the time you have to get up in the middle of the night to tend to them and nurse them and nurture them right and and this is where it takes a, a dramatic divide from parenting then you also kill them and eat them, eat them. <laughs> right <laughs> and and you and because animals live shorter lives you also witness a lot of animal death and so you have this very intense but necessarily complex relationship and so it makes sense that there be this dramatic range and and by turns tender and by terms al- almost callous there's there's a yeah. well, one way to read this is there's a, a a fair amount of callousness in this book that the, you know, dogs and sheeps are dogs and sheep are dismissed or, are are written off in, in a certain way or they just die and it's not that important. Mm-hmm. So it makes me think of, um, in grad school, I, I worked in several hospitals and, and the ER, um, for a few stints. And one of the things that, that really surprised me about that was there's an element of, callousness and like humor that a lot of medical professionals will apply to their patients and and situations and you can do a deep dive psychologically about (laughs) what that's all about but but i wonder if it's sort of there's a similar process going on where living on a farm is just like it's hard and it's kind of intense and and one of maybe one of the mechanisms that people use to kind of deal with that is this kind of like dark humor or callousness in the way they think about pretty heavy topics like death and animals eating each other and people eating animals. <laughs> right. There's, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of sh- sort of shoulder shrugging. <laughs> that yeah. Goes and on in this and so I, w- I wonder a lot about whether is the, the, the judginess and the callousness is that, um, is that descriptive or intentional? Like are the authors just writing like that because that's just how they sort of think about things or are they sort of deliberately saying, no, this is like, it's important for people to understand like on a farm, like this is, this is how things go. Um, and you it, better to be clear eyed about the fact that like some dogs are bad and just have to be put down or sent away. And you need to just know that. Um, and we're not going to kind of gloss over that and pussyfoot around that. Right. What, what do you think about that? Like, do you think that's... I don't, I don't know. It, it is hard uh, to divine 
what they th think is Im important. Um, just from, <laughs> so they have a whole section on how to weigh a dog, <laughs> for example, <laughs> or they talk about, uh, when, when they talk about riding a pony, they, they say, lucky will take you for a ride, but when she gets tired, she will let you know it. She will roll over. Be quick and get out of the way or she will roll on you. And she weighs 600 pounds. <laughs> Lucky is a small pony, but she is fat. But then no pony is perfect. So sometimes it, the book or the, the narrator takes a what appears to be pauses and takes a moment to, to really instruct. But the instruction seems fairly frivolous. I mean, as, as far as take-home lessons from a farm, I don't know that how to weigh a dog or how to avoid being rolled over on, by a pony. Those are the mo most important things I would want my kid to learn if, if he went on a field trip to a farm. And so that, so in some ways that seems a bit of a pose on, on their part that, that can't like, that can't be what they really want to emphasize yeah. um, in the book. But yeah, it's, uh, not, it's not a manual. It's not a field guide. Right. Um, and it's also hard to get a, to, to, put your finger on it because they shift perspective so much. Sometimes it really seems to be about the relationships between the animals um, and each other. And sometimes it's very much from the perspective of a frustrated farm owner <laughs> who doesn't like it when the cows knock down the fences or right. has to put up with all, all, all these annoying geese <laughs> or things like that. Um, but I think, um, I, I think there is certainly an attempt at honesty, you know, that they that they aren't trying to, the the, they aren't trying to romanticize it, yeah. and that's in spite of the fact that the illustrations and even some of the language feels very romantic, like mm -hmm. it has like it has this very pastoral romantic tone um, that's often at odds with some of the, the biting comments that they make. Right. And that, that on one level it's romantic in that people are, are portrayed as being a very small part of the, the much more bigger kind of tapestry of nature. But then, but then in, in sort of a reversal, the way all the animals are talked about and conceptualized is in a very human way. So right. they're, so they're anthropomorphized. Um, which is like a weird twist on romanticism too. It sort of like inverts it, which is right. kind of bewildering, like how, how we're supposed to. And even that solemn scene that you, you read out, it's 98% it's solemn, but then they also throw in fat boy. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so it, it, there's, always, there's, so much, there's so much tension in the book, I feel like, which is part of what makes it really interesting to me as an adult reader, um, there's so many interesting uh, kind of artistic and conceptual things going on in here. But I'm also fascinated by how intrigued and delighted my daughter has become with it um, lately. Like she, there's an, 
she um so this book is a, is a lot in some ways it's a lot like cars and trucks um yeah very busy lots of panels yep lots going on it, it's also it has a very loose narrative structure if any right which means you theoretically you can kind of dive in anywhere which when it comes to books like cars and trucks or even where's waldo like we're all about that my daughter will often just say take me to this page and we we started some but interestingly on this book she is very um, insistent about starting at the beginning with this one. Okay. We have to start at the beginning. And then, um, and maybe this has to do with the cats because the cats come at the beginning, but and she, the cats are maybe the best. Yeah. <laughs> she, she is like a coiled spring waiting for Max to show up. Like we get, she insists on starting the beginning and there's two pages before you get to Max. And she's already sort of like, turning the page as I'm reading the second page about eggnog and willow and gooseberry. And then she just gets so excited when we get to max, when the page actually turns to max. Part of of that. And this is part of the visual genius of the book is that before you get to max, there's all, there's a bunch of small little panels and and drawings of cats. And then max is huge. Huge. (laughs) He dom, he, he overcrowds the page. And so it's a little bit, like the game of peekaboo where you pull a blanket off and bam, like totally. there, there's somebody is <laughs> Max and just the, the way that his name's in all caps. Also no, no rhyme or reason to why some names are in all caps and other names. Are. Right. <laughs> That's just how it is on Maple Hill farm. You know, the, just faithful reporting by Alex and, and Martin Provinson. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I, I can see why that would, that, that there'd be a, a lot of anticipation leading up to that. Yeah, um, but I'm but I'm I'm also again just sort of very intrigued by the idea that it's it's so captivating without much plot. Um, like it, it's it's a very a classic way to kind of dice up uh, literature is it you know is a story plot driven or character driven, um, and this it seems and I don't know maybe you disagree but it seems pretty clearly this is like a character driven story. It's about all these little animal personalities that you kind of get to know that are just in this general environment of Maple Hill Farm. Um, but there isn't really much of a plot, right? That's that's right. I feel in the same way with cars and trucks, you are rewarded for remembering things as yep. the book progresses. So various creatures uh, pop back up and there's payoff from things that happened earlier, but there's not the sense of this is the traditional plot structure, rising action, climax, resolution. There's conflict, but it's not it's not over the arc of the book. It's between various geese or things like that. So um, I, I think it, it, it's a valuable thing for me because in other books, I'm, I often ask Jack, well, don't you want to know what happens? And he's just really excited to be living in this world of <laughs> Animal Hill Farm. And that's mm-hmm. that's that level of attentiveness, you know, page by page is something that I might <laughs> that, I, that I've I've learned to enjoy more as a parent reader. And I think that's I don't know, that's something I really want for my kids as readers of books is that I, in some ways I, I don't want them to be readers of books as like these objects and these things you have to consume like the best I don't know largely in my experience the best the best experiences I have with books are when you get sort of like immersed in a book 
um, and it's not even a book anymore. Then it's it's just a world that you're you're kind of living in, right? And I think that's where books like Cars and Trucks and Our Animal Friends really. I'm so glad that my kids have exposure to that early on, that they know that that's that's an important part of reading. It's just kind of getting lost and wandering around in a world. And the mechanism for that is this thing called a book, but that's right. not really what it's about. Right. And then I would say that also, so some parts of this book, whether it's the the way that it deals with death or even the vocabulary where it, it talks about the, what the irreverent crows hold their noisy conventions, mm-hmm. those those aren't that, that's a sentence that Jack's unlikely to to say or parse at, at this time in his life, but because it's such a delightful world, I think you don't have to know everything all at once, um, and you can you can enjoy the drama of how big Max is on the page or the way the way that uh, geese are grumble gabble grinch grunch and grabble. <laughs> you can enjoy stuff at that level just at the way it sounds and the way it looks without having to grasp everything all at once or drive towards the end to, to grasp the full plot and, you know, master the book in a cliff's notes sort of way. Um, you can, you can enjoy the simple pleasures that Maple Hill farm has to offer to, to whatever extent that you can. So, and I think part of the, the magic and maybe we're wrapping back around towards what we were talking about earlier is that, they, they're careful to present the farm, uh, unapologetically and its complexity. And as long as it's clear that they love it, you, you sort of trust them to be, uh, a, a guide to a place like this. Hey everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of a thousand and one good nights. If you want to learn more about this book and other bedtime stories, Check out our website at 1001goodnights.com. That's 1001goodnights.com. Be sure to sign up for our monthly email newsletter to get updates about upcoming seasons and other new content. Finally, please help us out by rating the show on iTunes. This helps spread the word about the show and get it in front of new listeners each week.